As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Total Soccer Show and the first of our series of Euro 2020 group preview pods. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today are three men who all agree it's totally normal that a tournament being played in 2021 is called Euro 2020. Firstly, let me introduce the 2020 edition of Taylor Rockwell. Hello, buddy. At least it's not being played in Brazil. So there's that. Yeah, that's a whole other kettle of Copper America <laughs> yeah. fish we need to maybe discuss at some point. Indeed, Taylor. Joining us also, we have the XGOG, the formation sensation, the man who hit you with analysis paralysis. That's a new one for you, Joe Lowry. <laughs> hello, Ryan. Hello, Taylor. And hello, mystery guest number three behind the last door is... Go ahead, Ryan. Ooh, I queued you last up. Last but not least, the third guest we have. Well, he's, he's very much not a guest, but a part of the CSS family. He's a man who thinks his team, Scotland, are going to do better than North Macedonia at this tournament, believe it or not. It's Graham Rudman. Hello, Ryan. I am, I'm, I'm very much counting on Scotland doing better than North Macedonia. I'm actually counting on Scotland doing better than England as well, so I, I can rub it in your face when we beat you at Wembley. <laughs> I'm sorry. To sense the, I'm sensing the dynamic we're going to have during this tournament. Yeah, yeah Euros, uh, Graham's going to be very different to uh, to normal Graham. Scotland are a major tournament. I've waited my whole life for this, and uh, I'm not going to let that opportunity bypass me. So, yeah, oh. I've got the war paint out. Rooster Rekber style, except it's in salt tires on my cheeks. <laughs> First of all, I appreciate the uh, the turkey reference since I'm previewing turkey. Uh, but for both of you, I actually don't know. How do you all watch these types of tournaments? Do you all get really into your respective nations? Are you going to be diehard? Uh, like I don't know, Taylor. I've never these? been at a tournament in my lifetime before. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new experience. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the nerves are running high then is the vibe i'm getting from graham <laughs> yeah yeah i'll try and i'll try and bring it down a little bit through the rest of the podcast i know of course the tournament <laughs> hang on a second graham i know you're young but i'm pretty sure you were alive in 98 and 96 yeah yeah you? yeah yeah but I, come on i was six <laughs> or i was six you know so i mean i might have been amped up in 98 but uh yeah just on like ju- juice boxes and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> I, I I was quite young for England, for Euro 96 in the England-Scotland game uh, in that tournament. I went to my cousin's wedding, uh, one of two England games which I've attended, which have, uh, I've attended a wedding on the same day they've taken place, the other being the opening game of the 2010 World Cup, England versus USA. Uh, both those couples are now divorced, so the moral of the story oh. is don't um, ever get married on the day that England are playing a game. And on that weird note, why don't we introduce <laughs> the topic of today's podcast? It's Group A, Euro 2020 group a we thought it logical to start with group a in this uh round of preview pods why not uh these ones these games will be taking place in rome and baku so we've got a city representing the start of modern civilization and another one edging its way into modern civilization by the most modern method possible natural gas and crude oil wealth yay isn't (laughs) that fun uh we're just gonna be uh taking responsibility for a team in this group uh taylor as he mentioned is going to be gobbling up the info about info about turkey oh i uh oh boy. I went for the literal turkey bird reference that's all i had there taylor i'm, I'm sorry about that hey I, I i like it my friend it it is the first time i've ever heard a turkey turkey joke so i think you're in you're in rare air there my friend it was either that i was gonna go they might be giants istanbul not constantinople but i know that we've already established that graham is a very young socio so they may not have uh, <laughs> jumped on that one well i would have appreciated it and uh <laughs> I care not for Joe and, and Graham, but I do care for Turkey. Uh, I, I lived there for a while, and mm. uh, though I do not anymore, I would still probably be pulling for them in, in this tournament, and I think they will be a fun team to pull for. I would say a very defensively solid team to pull for. Yes, indeed. Graham Rudman is going to be telling us about a, a nation very culturally similar to his own, Italy, of course. Um, they, they have been playing their games at uh, the Stadio Olimpico, the pantheon of Italian soccer. Looking forward to uh, telling us about the Italians, Graham? Yes, indeed I am, and I'm going to leave out what we do to uh, pizza in Glasgow, because I'm pretty sure the Italians will not like that, so I won't tell them about that. <laughs> okay, I don't know what that is, but I'm guessing you deep fry it. Do you deep fry uh, it? Yes, we do, yeah, yeah, of course we do. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful stuff, of I can't tell if this is a joke, and now Graham, in trying to avoid discussing it, is, is maybe going to no, have no. to discuss it. No, no, not a joke at all. I like a deep fried pizza, and if you don't, well, <laughs> you, you're, you're missing out. How do Americans get made fun of for being the fat ones? I don't get this. <laughs> it's, my understanding, Graham, uh, uh, is if you go to a fish and chip shop and you take something, they will deep fry it. Is that true? Yeah, it is. I mean, my, one of my, I mean this is an entirely sincere conversation, but uh, my, one of my friends used to work in a chip shop here in Scotland and we took him a bag of uh, confectionery once. And what I will tell you is that a cream egg deep fries well, but uh, anything with kind of wafer in it or something like that, no, you don't want to deep fry that. But yeah. Oh, well, this, uh, this conversation has taken a turn. Let's uh, let's get this preview pod done while your arteries are still intact. Uh, why don't we do that? Um, Joe, meanwhile, uh, is going to be uh, talking about a nation with more sheep than people and a nation which Gareth Bale ranks above both golf and Real Madrid. It's Wales. Joe, looking forward to that one? Sorry, Ryan. I was just making a call to uh, the, the nearest Scottish pizza place here in Phoenix, uh, <laughs> trying to get that deep fried pizza ordered for after recording. No, I mean, I'm looking forward to Wales. I think they have a lot of really interesting talent. They have key players like, as you mentioned, Gareth Bale, but he's certainly not the only important player they have. So there's there's a lot to dig into for Wales and I know for the rest of these teams as well. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, I'm, I really hope there is a Scottish pizza place in Arizona, by the way, Joe. I gotta say, that's the least appetizing. That's a, I didn't know you could make <laughs> Scottish pizza less appetizing, but it being then available in Phoenix somehow accomplished that goal. Nothing beats the heat like a fried pizza in, in, oh in the Arizona God. desert, I think you'll find. Uh, meanwhile, the other team rounding out that group is, uh, I'm going to sound a beige alert right now, for the neutrals, <laughs> Switzerland. I'm going to cro- uh, quote a great ship captain. His name was Zach Brannigan, <laughs> who uh, once said, What turns a man neutral? I hate these filthy neutrals, Kiff. With enemies, you know where they stand. But with neutrals, who knows? It sickens me. <laughs> Tell my wife hello, Ryan. Tell my wife hello. (laughs) Indeed. Have the boy lay out my formal shorts, Taylor. (laughs) We're going to be doing lots of weird Futurama references in relation to Switzerland in this episode. Be warned, everybody. Um, But for the meantime, why don't we start going through some of these teams? Uh, Guys, I'm going to ask you for a a few pieces of information. I'm going to go round the the table here. I want the team's nickname. I want to know how they got here, to quote B.A. Baracus, and another reference which half this podcast won't get. And also, um, I want to know about their coach and their playing style. Taylor, sir, I'd like to mm-hmm. hear from you first about Turkey. Sure, Turkey, uh, you can nickname Ayil Dizlalad. That's an easy one to say. Uh, the Crescent Stars, named after the Crescent and the Star. Uh, a second slogan only to the neutral planet that Ryan mentioned uh, with their slogan of live free or don't. Uh, but I will take the Crescent Stars instead. I'm sorry, uh, and they, on, live free yeah, or don't? That is the uh, neutral planet slogan, yes. <laughs> oh, great, wonderful. Sorry, go yes, ahead. More I Futurama like references for you and no one else on this show. <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, Turkey got here by finishing uh, second in the qualifying group, uh, right behind France, who finished top, ahead of Iceland, who, if you can do the math, finished third. Uh, the way they got there was by being a very strong defensive team. They conceded the fewest goals in all of qualifying, uh, only three goals in qualifying. Much has been made of the fact that since then, I think they've conceded something like 19 in 11 games. You can chalk that one up to them, trying different things, trying different formations in different looks. What I would say fundamentally, foundationally, is you are going to see a very strong defensive Turkish team trying to create some opportunities going forward. And that will be where maybe the question marks loom. They're going to come in a 4-3-3, but they will be without Cenk Tosun, who was their top scorer in qualifying. He will miss this one with injury. So it will probably be uh, Burak Yilmaz of Lille up top, but he is mid-30s, a little bit slower, not quite as mobile. So how you keep him supplied, keep him happy, and build around him will be the big question uh, for Turkey and uh, Şenol Güneş, their manager. In his second stint, he was their manager when they finished third at the World Cup in 2002. Taylor, you did, you did live in Turkey, of course, and mm-hmm. um, you, you're very good at pronouncing the correct pronunciation of player names, which I very much appreciate. What kind of a- uh, atmosphere is there in Turkey when the national team's playing? Is it, is it a pretty big deal? Yes, it is. It is uh, one of the most intense deals I think I've experienced. I was there for a Euro qualifier, I think, against Kazakhstan when we first arrived. Um, packed stadium. Their stadiums are always very intimidating to begin with, but when everybody is wearing the red and belting out that national anthem, which is a key feature. They are a unified fan base when it comes to that national team. My favorite thing, I don't know how much of it we will see, but is that when they're drawing or winning when it's a tense game, uh, you cannot buy alcohol, at least in the stadiums that I went to in Turkey, but you can buy and smoke cigarettes. So there was clouds of cigarette smoke hanging above the national stadium when things weren't going well. I don't know if we'll get that this time around, but I'm sure that if we have fans there, it's going to be a rowdy bunch. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Why don't we move on and hear a little bit about Italy from our man Graham Rutherford. 
Yes, I have uh, pulled out, I think, the, the heavyweights. I think it's, it's, it's fair to say the traditional heavyweights from Group A. Although having said that, Italy, of course, weren't at the, the 2018 World Cup. A bit of a, a national tragedy in Italy that they, that they didn't get there. Um, of course, the nickname of, of the Italian national team is the Azzurri, which is, I think, one of the, the more classic nicknames of a, of a national team, which basically just translates as the blue, although I think it does also relate to the, the shade of, of, of blue. It's very kind of rich, royal it's blue that the Italy play in, yeah. Um, their manager is Roberto Mancini, um, a well-known figure in, in European soccer, of course, has, has coached uh, Inter and Lazio and Manchester City, uh, of course. Um, he was actually appointed a month before the 2018 World Cup um, which was after the the disaster of Ventura, who um, who didn't who didn't lead Italy to the World Cup. Which the fact that he was actually pointed before the tournament hints at just how eager they were to to prepare for this tournament and how eager they were to to make amends. And I guess along with Luis Enrique and and maybe Yogi Low, I think Mancini is probably the the most accomplished, uh, illustrious coach in the tournament. Marcelo Lippi, who of course won the the World Cup with Italy in in two thousand and six. He says that Mancini has, quote, recovered the beautiful image of Italy's football. Um, and he's, he's been so impressive as Italy manager that he, he's, he signed a new three-year contract extension just uh, this month in, in, in May to take him all the way through to, to 2026, which will be interesting if Italy, uh, if it all turns to ash this summer, as it can do for Italy and has been known to do in the past. And they have a bad tournament, what they do there. But um, Mancini actually has the, the highest win percentage of any Italy manager in, in history at this point. They won um, 10 out of 10 qualifiers um, and finished top of their group, obviously, if you, you, would, you would assume if they did that. And, and uh, 70% win percentage, which, which, isn't, which isn't bad. And one of the most impressive things about Italy in qualifying was that they, um, they scored 37 goals in those 10 games and conceded only four. So... Yes, they, they obviously we all know about Catanaccio and the style of play that Italy are well known for. They do definitely have a defensive solidity, but this is a team that knows how to score goals as well, and that's why I actually struggle to kind of pin a style of play. I can I can pin a formation. He tends to favour a four three three formation with a central striker and uh, kind of wide forwards around him. But in terms of a style of play, I wouldn't class it as a defensive style of play. It's just a it's a very adaptable style of play, which I personally think is the way to go in, in international football. I think. It's difficult to impose a, a distinct style of play on a team when you don't have them for that for that long. So, yes, that is my very brief roundup of what to expect from Italy at Euro 2020. That's good stuff, Graham. Now, I don't I don't tend to regard Italy at the sort of the peak of their powers at the moment, but obviously you've, you've kind of teed them up here as certainly a traditional powerhouse in this group. Do you think they come into this one pretty confident of going far? Yeah, I think there is a quiet confidence from, from Italy. I think they've, they've got a good balance of, they, they certainly still have a lot of, I would say, aging players. So Bonucci and Chiellini are likely to start as the, the centre back pairing. Um, but they, they and, and, you know, Chiro Immobile is in his thirties now, but just comes off, off the back of a season where he scored 20 goals. And I think the season before he scored 36 or something like that. But they've got a good balance where they've got that experience, but then they've got the youth of, of, of players like Federico Chiesa, who I'll speak about a little bit, um, later on in our, in our chat. Manuel Locatelli has had a great season for Sassuolo. And even someone like Donnarumma, who is considered one of the, the best goalkeepers in the, in the tournament, I would say in the world, he's only, uh, you know, 22 years old. So there, there is a good balance there. And I, I like the way Italy are shaping up. I, for me, they're, they're, they're among the front runners, even though they did work, uh, miss out in the 2018 World Cup. Things have turned around for them pretty quickly. 
Uh, Graham, forgive me for jumping in for a minute, but like looking at this Italy team, there are so many big names, but there are also so many in like not a negative way necessarily, but like problematic names. Like Jorginho is one who like when there was this sorry ball and can you make him fit a system? Can you make him fit any other system? And yet it seems like Mancini has kind of found a way to get this team to gel. I don't want to jump the gun and get to key players for you yet uh, at this point, but I did want to ask, like, do you have an idea of how they like to play like in terms of formation and style? Yeah, so as I say, the four three three tends to be mm-hmm. how how they how they shape up. When I was looking through all their games, there's a little bit of experimentation in like that they played um, San Marino in, in, in their last uh, fixture, and you know there's there I think because of the opposition, there's a little bit more experimentation there. But when you look through the, the World Cup qualifiers that they've played and, and the Nations League game, it's very much a four three three. And the way it looks to me is it's a very well drilled def- defensive unit with a lot of the width coming from the the fullbacks. That, that midfield unit of, of three, which tends to be Barella, um, Jorginho, and I think Locatelli is probably going to start in that midfield. Ten, they tend to provide structure as well. That's what they're there for. And when I was watching them, it seemed like the, the movement and the fluidity was coming from the, the front line. So, you know, Federico Chiesa um, is a very fluid player by nature, can play in the left, can play in the right, can even kind of play through the centre. And, and I think he kind of embodies the attack of, of this Italian team. That's how I expect them to line up. I think it's actually very pragmatic. I, I, we always kind of um, associate pragmatic styles with defensive styles in, in soccer. I wouldn't, I, again, I wouldn't call this a defensive team from Mancini. I just think it's a very sensible, well-organized, everything kind of makes sense with, with this team from Mancini. And I think that could take them quite far in the tournament. Exciting stuff. And speaking of another team who went quite far in a recent tournament, uh, a team that Italians might call La Balene. That's the extent of my Italian knowledge, which is the Italian word for whales, the water-dwelling mammal, not the country. Joe, tell us about them. I'm not bold enough to go the natural language, the native language of, of <laughs> whales when pronouncing this nickname, like Graham and uh, Taylor were. So I'm going to go with whales' nickname as the dragons, which is the English translation. Uh, as you referenced there, Ryan, Wales reached the Euro 2016 semifinals. That was a big, big tournament for them, Gareth Bale factoring there, among other strong players in that 2016 group. But looking at this tournament coming up later this month or later in June, as we're recording at the very, very end of May, Wales finished second in Group E in their qualifying group, three points behind Croatia, ahead of Slovakia, Hungary, and Azerbaijan. And they have two more games before the Euros kick off to run and, and finalize some things out before the tournament actually starts. They play France on June 2nd and Albania on June 5th as their final final Euro tune-ups. Their manager, not Ryan Giggs, who has been uh, charged with assault, their manager is Robert Page, who took over the job, and his first game was back in November against the United States men's national team. Taylor and I watched that game in some great level of detail. Page is 46. He has caps with the Welsh national team, or he, he did during his playing career. Started as an assistant to Ryan Giggs back in August of 2019, and then since then has taken over the job. Stylistically, what Robert Page is trying to do, I think, can best be summed up by a former Wales uh, player, former Wales forward, Ewan Roberts, who said he's a good organizer. Talking about Robert Page, there's more to that quote, but I trimmed it down to that because I think it's the the central point of how Wales want to play. Like so many national teams, 
they take a pragmatic approach. And, and like Graham's saying, that's not always just defend, defend, defend. But it isn't always necessarily playing the same way every single game. They usually play out of a 3-4-3, th- uh, three, three, but they don't always control possession against teams that are stronger than them, like Italy in this group talent-wise. I would expect them to sit a lot deeper and, and not have as much of the ball. But against teams where they can control a little bit more possession, maybe that's against Turkey, maybe that's against Switzerland, they'll step out of their shell a little bit more. They'll get their forwards running in behind. They'll get Gareth Bale on the ball on that right side. They'll have Aaron Ramsey and a couple other players in midfield at times breaking lines with their passing and moving into different spaces. They can play with the ball even if they don't always choose to do that. Wonderful stuff from Wales there. A lot of expectation. And yeah, that that, that ghost of Ryan Giggs kind of haunting the team maybe at the moment, Joe? Yeah, it's such a such a bad situation, obviously, for him, and that that entire situation is terrible. But then even extending it into this group, there's been so much uncertainty in, in the Wales FA as a result of, of his actions and, and that trial and everything that's going on there. So it is a, it's a tough transition, but because Robert Page has been around for several years now and he has had a decent number of games in charge, and he's not trying to reinvent the wheel here in terms of how he's playing. His job is just to get Wales' best players in their best spots. I think he's up for that challenge, and they should be competitive in this group and in this tournament. Mm. Joe, when, when, sometimes when we have teams that like uh, made a big run in the last Euro or in the last World Cup, uh, th- they stand out for like that squad was really, really fun to watch. And I hope we get to see more of them with this Wales team. It feels like they've kept a decent number of those players. They don't have some of the ones like Ashley Williams, who maybe they don't need at this point anymore. But then they also seem to have bridged that divide a little bit with a lot of the younger players coming through. Do you think that this is going to be a pretty balanced team when it comes to the kind of veterans we expect to be playing for Wales versus players like Ethan Ampadu, Daniel James, David Brooks, getting minutes, getting involvement? Yeah, it's a really good mix. It it is very similar to Italy, maybe not quite in terms of quality, but in terms of the mix of ages on this roster. You have the veterans who have played at other major international tournaments and, and even major club tournaments with their teams. And then you do have those younger guys, the players you just mentioned, Taylor, and even a couple of others. There's this big mix of players, and that brings a lot of different perspectives. It brings a lot of different styles, and it even brings different skill sets based off of where different players are used on the field. So I think I think their mix of talent, and they do have talent, is going to be a big asset for them as they try to get out of this group, which is not going to be easy. It won't be easy indeed. I think each, each of these teams will be staking a claim to getting out of this group, which, of course, you can get out even if you finish third um, in, in these groups of four. The fourth team we're going to talk about in this podcast is the one rounding out, the aforementioned neutrals, who are anything but neutral. It's Switzerland, who currently sit 13th in the FIFA rankings. Their all-time high ranking, by the way, came in 1993 when they hit third under Roy Hodgson as their manager. And you may remember U.S. fans, uh, USA 94, they got through the group playing uh, the U.S. national team indoors at the Pontiac Silverdome. Was that the one where the roof fell in, Taylor? Uh, I mean, it could be any number of American stadiums where the roof <laughs> fell in. Uh, <laughs> I usually think of that as being RFK before and after Magneto right. destroyed it. But yeah, sure, the Silverdome too. Why not? Oh boy, okay. Uh, well, that was a 1-1 draw with the US that Switzerland had at that tournament. They lost to Spain in a knockout round. So US fans may also remember them from such games as this past weekend, uh, which was, <laughs> of course, the friendly uh, which uh, the US took on. Uh, and you can very much hear more about that game and more detail about yeah. the Swiss team if you listen to Taylor and Joe's podcast they recorded on Sunday evening. I very, very much recommend that. Uh, old people like me, meanwhile, I'm, I'm really playing on the young and old dynamic on this podcast, may remember this team from the opening game of the aforementioned Euro 90 
1996 tournament, a very cagey 1-1 draw where Stuart Pearce gave away a penalty by shielding his own face with his hands from a point-blank shot. It felt quite harsh then, feels quite harsh now, but here we go. I'm over it. Um, the Swiss national team, their nickname is either the Nati, the national team, or the Rosso Crociati, the Red Crosses or the Red Crusaders. Uh, that's in the Italian language, that nickname. One of four official languages in Switzerland, German, French, Italian and Romanche. Uh, this is their fifth European tournament. They topped Group D in the qualifying. Uh, they got a 5-2-1 record out of that. They drew and they lost to fellow qualifiers Denmark, but otherwise had a pretty uh, easy time getting in there. But what's notable about this Swiss team is, although they may fade into the background being the, the beige neutrals, they are actually pretty good lately. Uh, they cleared the group stage of the Euros for the first time in 2016 in France. They drew with uh, the host France in that one. Uh, they were defeated by Poland in the round of 16. But also in other tournaments, they finished fourth in the inaugural Nations League. Uh, they were beaten by Portugal in the semi-finals there and beaten by England on penalties to, uh, in the third place game after a nil-nil draw. They also cleared the round of 16 of the last two World Cups. They are not here, gents, to make up the numbers. They're on pretty strong form at the moment. They've won their last five. Uh, they've scored three goals in three of those last five, uh, but didn't win any of the seven before that. But let's ignore that for the second, for, for the moment. Um, their coach is Vladimir Petkovic, who succeeded Omar Hitzfeld excuse me, in 2014. He's a Bosnian-Croat. He was a Bosnian-Croat midfielder. He's now a naturalised Swiss. He managed Young Boys, uh, and he managed Lugano and a couple of other Swiss teams. Most recently, you might remember him as the coach of Lazio between 2012 and 14. As I mentioned, he's got a pretty decent record with this Swiss team. He has a signature formation, which he kind of brought into action with young boys, which sounds weird. Now I say it out loud. Uh, he, uh, he brought in a 3-4-3, which tends to be a 3-4-1-2. It becomes a 5-2-1-2 when, when they're in defend, uh, defense. Um, it's, it's basically his go-to formation, but he's also used a 4-4-2 diamond, a 4-2-3-1, or a 4-3-3, because, hey, this is modern soccer. People adapt. Um, as you will have seen in the US game at the weekend, in which Taylor and Joe may talk more about, the wingbacks in that 3-4-3 system tend to push up quite high. He'll use someone like a defensive midfielder like Granit Xhaka as a deep-line playmaker or a box-to-box midfielder. Xhaka has played uh, in left-back for, for the Swiss team. Uh, in, in the past, though, and you have someone like Dennis Zakaria, uh, Gladbach, who will partner him there. Uh, the key man, well, I'm not going to spoil the key man, but let's just say Jordan Shakiri uh, often plays <laughs> in a number 10 position uh, behind, a num- uh, behind a front two. You'll have someone like uh, Brion Bolo uh, up front with uh, Seferovic, tends to, that, which tends to be the case. Uh, and that's probably about it. They press high when they're out of possession. They've got lots of pace. They've got lots of power. They like to counter. All very modern things from this Swiss team. Any more for any more on that before we hit, before we hit a quick break, gents? Excellent. Let's have a quick break. <laughs> we will come back uh, with more info about these four teams. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. We are talking Euro 2020 Group A. Let's get back to Turkey. Let's talk Turkey, if you will, Taylor. Hmm. I want to know a bit more about their key players, their playing style, some breakout stars. Hit me with some technical details. All right. Uh, The last one I will say in terms of breakout stars is a tough one because I don't know how many players under the age of like 24 they're going to be playing. That's also the case for the next team I'm going to be previewing. So I'm just bitter about that. (laughs) Uh, But generally speaking, I think we can expect to see Turkey in a version of a 4-3-3. Sometimes it's a 4-1-4-1. That's kind of the same thing. Uh, But really, you will maybe see them in a back three. But generally speaking, I'd say 4-3-3 with... Two very strong center backs, meaning one is sitting on the bench, because they could be starting if they go with the back three, Ozan Kabak, Mera Demero, and uh, Charles Soyunju of Leicester City. But with the back four, you're not going to get that. I would say Soyunju is your nailed-on starter there. It comes down to Kabak versus Demero, and I think it's kind of a toss-up. I would have gone Kabak, but I don't know. Maybe his head is a little bit elsewhere because this season probably didn't go the way he expected, and maybe now he has to be back at Schalke, and if you're worrying about being at Schalke, you might not be worried about starting in the Euros. Uh, <laughs> ahead of, of that back line, we're going to have probably Okai Yokushlu. Uh, I think that is how you say his name. I hope it's Okai, although I would love for him to Sounds be Okai Yokushlu. Yeah, there you go. Thank oh, you for Ryan. that, Ryan. He'll be sort of your, <laughs> your deep-lying. <laughs> was that Joe with dismay? That was me. That was me. It was so good, but so bad, and I just couldn't contain myself. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Just know that every time he does that that's the noise that my soul makes. Yokushlu <laughs> okay. uh, as your like probably holding number six, Ozan Tufan as your shuttling number eight, and then Hakan Cholanolu uh, of AC Milan as theoretically can play wide, and that's the case with a lot of the players for Turkey. Might play wide, might play central as the number 10, so you'll get a little bit of rotation there, probably some position swapping, but Chalanolu will be their free kick taker, most likely. He will be uh, the sort of playmaker, the one who's pulling the strings and trying to feed the ball into to uh, Burak Yilmaz, who I mentioned earlier, who I would expect to start. He is the captain. He is, I think, has the most caps of anybody on the team, certainly has the most goals uh, for Turkey right now with 28. You could see a youngster like Enos Unal uh, maybe get some minutes in there, but Yomaz, I think, will be your starter. Out wide is where, again, we're going to have a little bit of rotation, and this is where I think we might also have some potential breakout performances. Uh, starting with Cengiz Under, who is only 23, but has bounced around. He spent uh, the season, at least part of the season, on loan with Leicester, but is a Roma player, and feels like the type of Roma player that will do very well, at least for a while, under Jose Mourinho. Because he's very quick, very technical on the ball and works very hard. A lot of the footage I saw from him of his like best moments, best actions were him hauling back 20 yards to make up, make up a difference to poke a ball out of bounds when it should have been a shot or to get on the end of a cross defensively, less so attacking wise. And I think for Turkey, he's going to have to be uh, an, an offensive contributor. Uh, so he, I think will be either on the right wing, maybe up top, but mostly on the right wing. Yusuf Yazaja would be another winger, 24 years old from Lille, three different Lille players on this Galatasaray, excuse me, on this Turkey team, not Galatasaray, fewer Galatasaray players than Lille players, I think. Um, um, but Yazaja on the left is another one who could be number 10, so we could swap him with Chalanolu a little bit. But another set-piece taker, another very good left-footed player, and I think can be critical to Turkey. But who ends up being the key 
attacking performers who ends up supplying Burak Yilmaz or getting into strong attacking positions. I think that is what's going to be the difference for Turkey in this competition. I think they have enough defensive stability. I haven't even mentioned a player like, say, Zeki Celik, who will be their right back, also of Lille, also Lille starting right back, having won the title. You'd expect them to be in confident form, but how they're able to transition from strong defense to good attack. They've done it at times in qualifying, but then there have been other nil-nil, two-nil losses that weren't quite as emphatic. So those are some of the big names. I would say the biggest one that's going to kind of, so so goes his performance, so goes Turkey, would be Burak Yilmaz up top and maybe Chalar Soyuncu in the back. I do have a potential breakout player, but I feel like I've talked for a very long time about a lot of different names, all of which are sort of difficult to pronounce and remember. So uh, I open it up to you all if there are questions that I might have missed. I do. I, I do have a question for you, Taylor. Sorry, Ryan. I'm wondering. Graham Ryan's going to be a pun, Joe, so don't apologize <laughs> okay. to him. You're right. I'm, I'm not sorry, Ryan. Graham talked about how this Italy team that, that he's talking about has scored mm-hmm. a bunch of goals in qualifying for this yeah. tournament. And they have this defensive structure, but they certainly have attacking firepower. And in Wales, for me, they tend to be a little bit more defensive against teams like Italy, or I would assume mm-hmm. against teams like Italy. They played Belgium recently, and they sat back deep after scoring an opening goal, Wales did. I'm wondering for you, with Turkey, do you expect them to be the protagonists and to control the game against maybe non-Italy teams, so against Switzerland and, and Wales in a group like this? Or do you think they do tend to lean a little bit more defensive, even with some of the promising attacking talent they do have? I would venture, uh, if I were guessing, I would say they will be defense first and okay. they will look to contain and counter and invite that pressure on. I think they are capable of scoring goals. They scored 18 in qualifying, which I think was second to France, who obviously topped their group. So no surprises there. But they still, I think, are probably going to be more so comfortable defending and countering. And then if they have to, they can kind of go at an opponent. Certainly if they're losing, they're able to kind of break out of that shell and uh, and get some attacks going. But I think, yeah, they're not going to be front foot attacking like juggernauts first. I think they'll be defensive, solid, strong first, and then they'll go from there. Gotcha. Okay, Ryan, now you can you can drop your turkey pun. Go for it. Thank you. I was going to talk about, yeah, birds, but I'll, I'll, instead I'll ask about um, uh, the age of this team, Teddy. You mentioned not many under mm-hmm. 24s. Do you foresee that being an issue? In terms of, in terms uh, of like, I don't know, like mobility fatigue? and fatigue. And, yeah. Yeah, in terms of not, not being sprightly. No, because it's not, it's not even that they're the most, like, there are certainly older teams. Again, I'll talk about one later on. Uh, but like, Burak Yilmaz is 35. Uh, I think you've got a couple of the 30 year olds in there and, and they will be involved to varying degrees. I think mostly it's just that you've got a lot of 25 to 29 year olds. So you've got players basically in their theoretical primes. Uh, it's just, so I think I was complaining more so because there's not like the 19 year old who's going to be really, really exciting. It's a lot of 25 year olds who are already, relatively known but maybe could make that jump because a lot of them are playing in the domestic league in turkey very good let's move on oh wait oh sorry and that and that all is to get to my final one i apologize uh is a guy named ridvan yilmaz i wanted to spotlight for a moment no relation to burak yilmaz but he is a 20 year old not 21 20 year old left back for besiktas he has one cap for the turkish national team at this point his competition for that left back spot would be uh, Umuth Marash, who plays for La Havre, who are obviously in the second division in France. And there is some consternation amongst, amongst Turkey fans that I read 
that can you go into a major tournament with a second division player? Does he have the experience and the reps? He has uh, Mirasha's 12 appearances for the national team. Not trying to be disparaging of him, just trying to point out that there is a possibility that we will see this 20-year-old Ridvan Yomaz, who is a very new player. He came through the Besiktas Academy. I think he first started playing for the senior team in 2019, but has played left back, has played left wing back for Turkey, and could do that for them here. So that is one to keep an eye on. Not saying he is going to be the starter, but I think there is some competition at left back. And if he does emerge, then we've got a 20 year old winning the Turkish domestic league, playing in the Euros left back, always a sort of in demand position. So maybe uh, he turns some heads with some strong performances. Graham Rusvan, Italy, key players, potential breakouts, hit us. Yep. So the, I've already mentioned them a, a few times. Uh, it'll come as no surprise that I think Italy's key player is Federico Chiesa. Um, he had a, a challenging season for Juventus on a team level. Obviously, Juventus having a a, a poor season by their usual high standards, on, only just uh, scraping a fourth place finish. But that certainly wasn't down to Chiesa. In fact, he was one of the the players, one of the few players who was who was really driving them forward. Four, Fourteen goals and nine assists for Juventus in all competitions this season, and. Um, I think some people will look at uh, Donnarumma as maybe Italy's key player. He has very much emerged as a, as a leader for this Italy team. He is a, a superstar in his own country. Maybe not this summer with some fans because, of course, he's leaving <laughs> AC Milan uh, very controversially as a free agent. It does look like he's on his way to Juventus. I know Barcelona and PSG are also looking at him, but... If he goes to Juventus, yes, as I say, he might not be very popular with a lot of fans. But at the moment, he's still a a, a well-liked superstar in, in, in Italy. I was reading that he was in a, a very popular Nintendo Switch commercial in Italy, um, which I actually haven't seen myself. So I, I might check that out after the podcast. I want to see what that's all about. Uh, I like I like to think that it was him. You know how the switch kind of splits in half. I, I like to think it was him maybe playing and uh, on one half and Buffon on the other one, and there was some sort of passing of the of the baton there. But it's a Nintendo Switch. Anyway, if you're a marketing agency, <laughs> call me because I've got great ideas. Uh, and so yes, I'm going for Chiesa as uh, Italy's key player. I think he's their their difference maker. He should start most games on the right side of a, of a 4-3-3. But I've already mentioned he, he is quite fluid and, and versatile. So he, he ends up on the left. He ends up through the centre. The little bit of a wild card um, here is a player called Domenico Berardi, who scored 17 league goals for Sassuolo this season. And he is in contention for that right wing spot. He's, he's played a few games for Italy in that position when Chiesa has even either been rotated out or missing. He scored recently in a World Cup qualifier against Northern Ireland. So it, if, if Mancini was to, to throw a wild card in there, it could actually be Berardi on, on the right and maybe Chiesa over Insigne on the left. But I still, I still anticipate Chiesa is going to be, going to be the guy for Italy at this tournament. Um, if I run through very quickly their starting lineup, these are all very recognisable names to, to European soccer fans. So Donnarumma and goals, Florenzi, excuse me, Florenzi and Emerson Palmieri at left uh, in, in the fullback positions. Emerson is obviously maybe a notable name given that he has hardly played this season and I actually forgot he was still a, still a <laughs> Chelsea player. So that we'll see how quickly he can get up to speed. You know how every player at the Euros this summer is going to be absolutely knackered? Well, Emerson, Emerson Palmieri is not going to be one of them. He's going to be raring to go. Um, Silver linings, baby. Silver yeah. linings. <laughs> Centre-back partnership, as I kind of referenced earlier, Benucci and, and Chiellini. Midfield three, 
um, will likely be Barella, uh, Jorginho. I'm a massive fan of Nicolo Barella, by the way. I think he's 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 fantastic. He's not far behind Keza in terms of a, a key player, so he's certainly, I think he'll have a big influence on this tournament. Um, Locatelli, the third midfielders most likely, and then Insigne, Chiro and Mobley, likely over Andrea Bellotti as a centre strike, central striker, and then Chiesa. Um, in terms of a potential breakout star for a team like Italy, it's, it's difficult to name someone who you maybe haven't heard of because they're a team of superstars and someone like Moise Kane isn't even in the, the 26 um, squad for, for this tournament. So I'm going to pick Manuel Locatelli just because I think, obviously, if you watch a lot of Serie A and a lot of Italian soccer, you'll know a lot about him. But maybe you don't watch a lot of Serie A and he also doesn't play for one of the, the big heavyweights in Serie A. And it feels like this summer he could get himself a move to a, a Manchester City or a PSG who have both been linked with him. And I think if he has a good tournament, they could add, add an extra 10, 15 million euros onto onto his price tag. He's he's a, a bit of an all-action player. He'll bring a lot of zest and energy to, to the middle of the of the pitch, I've seen him mentioned as a as a natural successor to to Fernandinho at City, but I, I don't think that's a natural a, a perfect comparison. I think he's a little bit more rounded than than Fernandinho. He certainly doesn't uh, commit as as many fouls as as Fernandinho. I'd say maybe a little bit technically adept, but he's twenty three years old, and so this could be a real opportunity for him to uh, for him to really prove himself at a top level and make make the point that he can step up to one of these so called these so-called uh, super clubs. A weird related fact to this Italy squad, Jorginho, and I had to check this three or four times, but Opta tweeted it out and it, it does seem to be correct. Jorginho became only the second Italian-born player to win the Champions League or European Cup. So going all the way back to when did the European Cup start? The 50s or something like that? To win the, that competition uh, for a non-Italian team after Christian Pinucci for Real Madrid in 1998. There's only been two... Italian Italian born players who've won the Champions League or European Cup for a non-Italian team. That's quite incredible. But did anyway, Canavaro that's my win it. I don't think Cannavaro did win it. No, because he would have been at Juventus and then he was at Real Madrid when they weren't particularly good. Yeah. They lost that final. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah. Well, you are right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if I'm not, blame Opta because I've taken that directly from one of their tweets. So, <laughs> can, can I be the stickler for a moment to ask, is Opta aware that Jorginho was born in Brazil? <laughs> <laughs> Just wondering. <laughs> you mean uh, Jorginho or Jorge yeah. Luis Freno Filho? Yeah. So, so the way I went, the way they tweeted Brazil, that, I, I thought teams. they were. I thought they were saying that because Emerson Palmieri is also he's he's also born in Brazil, right? Uh, that would make sense. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so I guess right. So link, yeah. I guess if we broaden that out, there's three Italian players. Forget the born bit. <laughs> this is becoming the week's debacle all over again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I threw a wrench into that one, but I was just like, those two feel like they have very Brazilian-sounding names for being. No, Jorginho is definitely born in Brazil. I knew that. Yeah, yeah. There must, they must be. There must only be three. Anyway, I looked all the way through, and I'm, I'm pretty sure if we re-jig that fact uh-huh. a little bit, I think there are only three because I'm counting on my Emerson Palmieri then because he's Brazilian-born. Three Italian players who have won the European Cup for non-Italian teams. Jorginho is one of them. Emerson Palmieri is another another one. So that maybe that's why he's in this squad. <laughs> well, um, and Graham, how's the construction set today? By the way, it's it's nice and quiet today because it's nice. It's okay. uh, it's evening here, so oh, right. this is okay. a good time. 
Oh, wonderful. That was my only other burning question, Ryan. Back to you. I just uh, a quick one. You mentioned Moise Kin not making the squad. Is that controversial in any way, or is that just a matter of not getting enough game minutes? Um, it is quite controversial, yeah. But he he also played. So Italy played just a few days ago a friendly against San Marino that arrived in earlier, and and Moise Kin played in that game and scored, made a made a good impression. Um, so for him not to be in the squad, you mentioned kind of a lack of of game minutes. I think he's he's played a reasonable amount for for PSG this season, and also played uh, played a quite high standard. He's he's impressed. So it is it is a little bit surprising that that he isn't in that squad. But if you if you look at maybe the the makeup of the squad, I think it's quite clear that that Mancini is counting on Belotti and um, and Immobile. Sorry, I had a bit of a mind blank there. Immobile has kind of his two central strikers and then the rest of his forwards are all sort of wide forwards. So I, I guess Moise Keane maybe misses out just because he's a little bit of a misfit and maybe doesn't fit into this system. Having said that, you know, PSG play a 4-3-3 and he, and he, and he did okay there. So yeah, it, it is a, it's a strange one and has definitely caused some headlines in Italy. Yeah, I should say so. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Graham. We're going to be talking Wales and Switzerland in more detail right after we take this quick breather. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we are back and we are talking Wales. Joe, I'm going to need to know why this team's not going to finish fourth in this group. So tell me a bit more about the key players and a potential breakout players i didn't mean to be rude about wales there but i think it's a competitive group <laughs> is my point i won't take it as a personal affront or a shot at me um <laughs> wales have have talent and this is a tough group brian to get to your point there is a clear top team in italy and in, in terms of talent at least and then after that i could see 
Switzerland probably number two, and then Turkey and Wales both fighting for that third spot potentially. But this could go any number of different ways for Wales. Their, their captain and their star is a player that everyone knows. It's Gareth Bale. He plays on the right wing for Robert Page. Robert Page, he brings a lot of speed in behind. Uh, he hasn't scored a goal yet under Robert Page, but he's extremely dangerous on that side. He can play on the left as well, but he's got the speed, even if it's not as much speed as he had in his Tottenham part one days or Real Madrid, but he does have wheels and he can be a threat breaking in beyond that back line. He's not the only key attacker, though, for Wales. They have a lot of younger talent. Taylor mentioned Daniel James from Manchester United earlier, and Harry Wilson as a player specifically that I want to spotlight. 24 years old, played in the championship for Cardiff this year on loan from Liverpool. He played 37 games, had seven goals and 12 assists in the championship. He can play wide on the wing. He, he very likely might start on the left, opposite Gareth Bale and, and kind of behind and to the side of a number nine or he can play as a number nine that drops in. And Wilson's one of my key players, not necessarily because he's the most talented or the best player or the player that I expect to stand out on this Wales team, but because where he plays on the field for Wales can be a bit indicative of how they want to approach a game. And I'm going to turn this over to another Wales player, not a former Wales player, but this time a current Wales player, Connor Roberts, who said, when we play with a number, when we play with a false nine, excuse me, and Harry Wilson up there, there's no point booting it up to him. And then Connor Roberts went on to contrast Harry Wilson as that nine against Kiefer Moore, who's a six foot five center striker for Wales, who when they have him up there, uh, we play it a bit more direct, a bit more not huff it football, but long ball, and we try to play off of him. So there is this contrast in styles. If we see a, a bigger number nine or really a non-Harry Wilson number nine, we can infer that, that Wales are going to try to, to play a little bit more direct versus if it is a Harry Wilson type up there who's only five foot eight, likes to drop in more as experience across more spaces on the field. We can guess that Wales are, are confident in their ability to control possession and are going to have a little bit more of the ball. So that's a, that's a key player alongside Gareth Bale on the front line. And then another guy that I mentioned, Aaron Ramsey. Uh, he hasn't played under Page yet because of some injuries and, and different things with Juve. But he's been a difference maker for Juve at times this year. I know certain fans, and I think Christian Kupo have had sort of adverse reactions to him, adverse reactions to Aaron Ramsey, but I think he's a phenomenal player. So skilled on the ball, he can create a little bit deeper or he can step higher up the field and, and be that more attacking presence if he is the other half of that double pivot next to Ethan Ampadu. Those two players can complement each other really, really well in Robert Page's 3-4-3. Breakout-wise, this team does have some younger players, Taylor. Sorry to rub that uh, salt into your wound there. But with Neko Williams, he's the player I want to spotlight here. 20 years old, a player that I think a lot of folks will know. He plays for Liverpool. He played 767 minutes in all competitions for them this year. Uh, he's not a regular for Liverpool, and he's not a key part of that team just yet. But he is a key part of this Wales team under Page. He started three games of his six so far at left wing back, and he is the presumed starter at left wing back for this tournament across from Connor Roberts on that right side. He brings a different look to the left wing back role, not because he, he plays it dramatically different than, than a lot of other left wing backs, but because he's right footed, not left footed. And U.S. men's national team fans with Sergino Des playing on that side recently kind of have an idea of what that can look like. It can look like almost having another inverted winger. On that side, a player who can cut inside and combine with a central midfielder with a number nine or with the left winger on that side. Uh, Neko Williams is very capable of cutting inside onto that right foot and then combining and doing all of those things from there. He's also got a strong left foot, so he can still play a ball in from that side or he can use that weak foot to hit some of the more standard outside back on that left side kind of passes. So it's been a small sample size from him so far as it is oftentimes with young players, but he stacks up really well in the Premier League in terms of other outside backs and his ability to pressure, pass forward, drive the ball forward and create chances. So he's a guy as 
maybe the youngest alongside Ampadu starter in this Wales group. I think he's a guy certainly to keep your eye on during this tournament and then going forward with, with Liverpool or wherever else his career takes him over the next couple of seasons. Joe, you mentioned them having talented youngsters, but then you also talked about Dan James, and now I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh! Uh, did did Daniel James factor into that penalty kick shootout, Taylor? I, I genuinely can't remember. If he did, he scored his. So I, I can't really uh, hate that much. And really, it's just, I think, more so my frustration with uh, yes, the Man United's yes. manager than it is the player. Because Dan James is a very good player in a very specific style. And it and, seems and, like Wales uh, know how to use him. And and I think Daniel James, his his style is a little bit more aggressive. He does tend to be a little bit more direct. And that fits with what Wales try to do. Even when they do control more possession, even if it is Harry Wilson, that five foot eight number nine, playing in that spot, even when he's dropping in, they still like to play direct. When you have Gareth Bale, you almost have to play direct. At least that's his style. And so Daniel James and other other players in this group fit really well, along with the wingbacks, Connor Roberts and Neko Williams. It's a group that works well playing a little bit faster in possession and trying to break in behind. And uh, Daniel James does fit into that, like it or not, Taylor. Joe, Joe, I've got a, a question for you. Obviously, as as we all know, this tournament was meant to be played a year ago. Um would Wales have been in better shape had this been played? The name that I'm I'm, I'm cutting onto there is Harry Wilson, right? So Harry Wilson, I th- I think maybe I've got this wrong, but my impression is that he hasn't had as good a season as he as he has had previously, and also, of course, a year ago was before the whole kind of Ryan Giggs court case. He would have been the one leading him into the tournament. Has that year postponement benefited them, or has it uh, hit them hit them hard? I don't. Well, I give Joe, Joe, Joe. I want you to answer that. Sorry, I've just Grant. That's a really great question, and I actually have uh, thought about that for Turkey as well. I feel like we should add that as a category for all four of the teams. So, Joe, Joe I, w- I want you to answer. I apologize again for interrupting, but I also feel like maybe we should say: uh, Is each team better or worse off at this point? Because that is sort of a strange wrinkle for every single team in this competition. I don't. I don't think Wales is worse off. I think they actually might be better off. I'm not sure how they would have been affected if it's Ryan Giggs coaching versus Robert Page. I don't think stylistically there's a massive overhaul or there's been a massive change from Giggs to Page. So I think that's probably a wash, at least in terms of tactical setup. Maybe not man management, but I don't know. I'm not inside that locker room. But with Wales' roster makeup, they have some younger players. They have players, even like Harry Wilson, who, yeah, didn't dominate in the championship this past season. But seven goals, 12 assists is still a pretty good return uh, on loan from Liverpool. So you have guys like Harry Wilson. You have time that's then afforded to players like Neko Wilson and Ethan Ampadu to get more experience, to play more, to train in high-pressure environments. I think that brings a lot of value. We probably wouldn't be seeing Neko Williams start as a left wing back, or we wouldn't even have him necessarily in this conversation if this tournament had been played last year. So for Wales, at least, I, I think it either is a wash or it, it benefited them to have that year off in, in between 2020 and 2021 for this tournament. Yeah, I don't like to sing the praises of the home nations who aren't England too much, but I am quite threatened by the, the midfield talent that you mentioned, uh, Joe, with Aaron Ramsey, with uh, with Harry Wilson, with Ethan Ampadu, and Dan James as well. It's... Uh... Yeah, I think I'm, I'm I'm quite interested to see who's who's going to finish bottom of this group. We'll have that discussion later on um, because, it, as as we've mentioned, I do think it's quite competitive. Uh, let's go to Switzerland and their key players. Uh, I was going to pick Ricardo Rodriguez here because I've always admired him. I thought he was very impressive at Wolfsburg. Obviously, a, a plays plays a left back, but also a wing back, a, a big big attacking threat he is. Uh, and he also actually, you know, can play on the left side of a back three as well. He has to, he did do that for, for uh, Switzerland in the recent World Cup qualifiers, and we had Ruben Vargas pick, pick, 
pushing up as the uh, left wing back instead. So he's he's one to watch. Maybe um, uh, Joe and Taylor, I'll invite you to mention him in a bit as well because he did some he did some stuff against the US as well. Um, but but the key player for me, I think Jordan Shakiri and his hair transplant fairly often, uh, obviously, because he's still the megastar of this team. He's still the key creative force. And when if, if we look at um, this team and whether they're better off this year than last, I'm not sure whether he is the key to that question. Is he better off this year than last? Has he played less minutes than he did the previous year? So maybe that's an, an, a way of looking at Switzerland. But at the same time, as I mentioned, they are in good form at the moment. They're on a st- storming goal-scoring form at the moment. So they are coming into this tournament pretty hot as well. So I'm tempted to say they might be better off at this stage. Um in terms of breakout players, I was tempted to pick... Well, he's, not, he's not a breakout anymore, but Brian Bolo. But I, I actually wrote a piece about him uh, for Euro 2016 as a breakout player. And he barely played in that tournament. I think he missed the two group games as well. And he's, he's, uh, he's had some, some adventures lately with breaking rules. I don't know if you remember that he, he broke COVID rules recently and was reportedly seen fleeing on a rooftop from a party which he was attending. He also has a very loose relationship with his driving license uh, lately as well. Uh, so in terms of breakout players for Switzerland, it's similar to what Taylor said with the, with, with the Turkey team. Not a lot of spring chickens involved in this Swiss team at the moment but maybe Graham you can we can talk about a couple of the Scottish premiership players who <laughs> with um with Switzerland at the moment we've got um, Albion Ajeti at Celtic and, and Cedric Itton as well who won with Rangers this season I wouldn't say first name on the team sheet or anything but has three goals in four games with Switzerland Graham have you got anything on on uh, on Itton uh Itton good Ajeti bad yeah, that's what I thought. That's pretty much what I thought. But he certainly seems to have an excellent ratio with Switzerland, Itton. So I'm looking forward to seeing what what he can do. Um, t- Taylor and Joe, anything on on what you noticed from the game against the US? Maybe a, a, anything about Rodriguez or any other players we need to talk about? Joe, perhaps I'll go to, come to you first. Sure. Yeah, Switzerland were really impressive in that game. They they wasted some chances later on, but it's soccer. That stuff happens. Ricardo Rodriguez, I think, was really strong on that left side. He's versatile in his positioning because he did a few different jobs in that game. He started as a wing back, then moved to a center back spot, and then tucked inside at times in the in the first half as well. So he's really versatile. He can score goals, as the United States clearly saw in the first half. He can do a whole bunch of different stuff. I really like Zakaria in midfield. Uh, Shakiri as well tore the U.S. apart at times with his movement off the ball floating as a number 10 slash right winger this is a really really strong team that that was better against the U.S. they were the better team certainly on Sunday night Uh, a team that I think will cause problems for not just uh, Wales and Turkey in this group but Italy as well Taylor what did you want to toss in there I mean, basically what you said, just adding that, I mean, this was against the U.S. that were trying to be aggressively in their uh, aggressive in their press and like take the take that press to Switzerland high up the field, but wherever they could. And the Swiss just constantly had ways out of it. They had people dropping in or swapping, uh, swapping places or overloading one side. And with all of that, it didn't seem particularly improvised. It felt like if it's Seferovic dropping in, he knows where Shakiri is going to be, like Shaka is going to step up to fill some space. Embolo is going to slide over. It feels like they're very good about knowing where they need to be in relation to their teammates. I'm assuming part of that is how long their manager has been there. And part of that is just that they're a very good team. But I think across the board, they've got a ton of talent. And I think it will be... It does seem like a tournament that the Swiss should do better in than normal, and they usually do fine, but it feels like they always kind of make the round of 16, make it to the next round, and then don't progress that far. I would... 
like to see Switzerland keep going. I don't really have strong feelings about the Swiss. I'm not sure the Swiss have strong feelings about the Swiss. But uh, this does feel like a team that has to kind of make that next step in my mind. Are you issuing, issuing a beige alert for Switzerland there, Taylor? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, the beige alert. The beige alert, indeed. Well, um, if we're going to look at some, some numbers that define these teams, I'll go first and talk about Switzerland here. Um, they have a lot of chances on goal. As I mentioned, they, they're a team that likes to push up. They're a team that are quite fast-paced and attacking. Um, in the recent World Cup qualifier against Lithuania, they had a 1-0 win. In, with a one goal, they had 21 attempts on goal against Bulgaria uh, recently they had 13 attempts on goal there was a qualifier against San Marino yes they won it 7-0 and yes San Marino but it had 30 attempts on goal even against Spain in the Nations League in their recent run uh, they had seven uh, attempts on goal so what I think we're going to see here is uh, uh, quite opposite to Man City in the second half of the Champions League final they're going to you know Get up there and have some <laughs> put the ball on, on on target and perhaps off target, but we're going to see some action from this Swiss team. And uh, as I mentioned, they're they're definitely not here to make up the numbers. So I'm uh, as I'm as excited as I can be about the neutral nation of Switzerland in this group. Taylor, have you got any numbers that sort of define Turkey for this? And perhaps you can give us your perspective on on their status this year compared to last. Uh, yeah, I would say f- uh, to take the second part first, they are definitely in a stronger position, not just because they have uh, more players with another season under their belt, but because I think at this time last year they would have been without uh, two of those center backs I mentioned, uh, Demiral and Kabak, and then also Yazija and uh, Jenk Tosun. They'll only be without Jenk Tosun this tournament, so they get three of those four back, which definitely puts them in a much stronger position. I think the thing that I would just point to when it comes to the numbers and how confusing they can be for Turkey is the one I mentioned previously that in qualifying they scored plenty of goals, they conceded very few, but then lately there's been a 3-3 draw lately is a relative term, but there was a 3-3 draw with Germany, there was a 4-2 win over the Netherlands, there was a 3-3 draw with Latvia. They tend to score a lot of goals lately, but they're also conceding a lot of goals. And so if that is experimentation and they're just trying different things, then that's great. And we can expect them to go back to that defensively solid, uh, somewhat attacking approach. But if it is them trying a lot of stuff because they don't know what their best look is, then I think we can expect them to score some goals and concede more than a few. And it's just kind of goes to how they approach that opening game and how consistent that lineup and approach is from there. Graham, the numbers that define Italy for this tournament, do you have any for us? Yeah, I'm, ju- I'm, I'm just going to go back to their, their qualification numbers, which, um, you know, six clean sheets from, from 10 games. I referenced earlier their, their 37 goals scored over the, over those 10 games. And I, th- I think that's just an illustration of how this is a very um, well-balanced team. Um, they're not defensive. They're not attacking. In terms of whether they are in a better position this year than they would have been last year, I'm, I'm split on that because... Um, to be honest, it's a little bit neglectful of me so far that I haven't mentioned Marco Verratti, who, of course, would have been a key figure for them in, in, in this tournament this time last year. He is named, and at the moment, Italy, at the time of recording, Italy still have a provisional 28-man squad. So, of course, it's a, it has to be cut down to 26. Verratti is named in that in that 28-man squad, but it's a li- the vibes are a little bit Harry Maguire on the bench for the Europa League final, if you know what I mean. It, it feels like he's probably not going to feature a lot. And so obviously he's such a a, a good player that not having having him for this tournament 
it sends me towards saying that Italy are in, maybe in a slightly worse place. However, they've got Nicolo Barella, who I think has had a, a brilliant season for Inter. I think he's a lot better than 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 he was a year ago. And I've mentioned Locatelli as well, who's had a, an excellent season. So I'm split a little bit. I think not having Verratti is is a blow, but other players have sort of risen up and 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 could take his his place in the team. Yeah, that's a good note about Barella as well. So I think we highlighted him as one of the signings of the season as well. He's had a superb contribution for Inter this season. Joe, the numbers for Wales. I've already established more sheep than people. You got any others? <laughs> I, I do. The I don't have the sheep to people ratio on hand, but I do have two numbers. One and four are my two numbers, and I'll explain them in just a second. Wales have scored one goal or fewer in seven of their last eight games, and that is... That is indicative of some of the attacking struggles they've had under Robert Page so far. As I said earlier, Gareth Bale hasn't scored a goal under their current manager. So that is something to watch for. I I think they have attacking firepower. I've talked about how they can be dangerous, but we haven't really seen it recently. And that's that's a bit of a problem. My other number four, uh, even though they haven't scored a bunch of goals in a bunch of their recent games, during Euro qualifying in their group, they had a plus four goal differential. They didn't light the world on fire with their scoring, but defensively, they're really solid and they have been solid. So will that goal differential and that kind of general dis, you know, distance between their inability at times to score goals and their strong defensive work, will that continue into this group? I don't know. But if they are going to continue to struggle to score goals, they're going to have to be solid defensively to stay afloat. Excellent stuff. All right. I want to go with one more question, if that's okay, gents. I want to hear the weirdest soccer-related fact about your team. Actually, I'm going to have two more facts because I want to to, um, ask for your predictions about where your team's going to finish in the group as well. I'm going to spring that one on you. But also the weirdest soccer-related fact or the strangest or the funnest fact. I'll go first with Switzerland uh, in that it's quite a unique country in that the majority of the players don't actually sing or many of the players don't actually sing the national anthem. There's this quite big question of Swiss identity. There's a lot of Kosovo Albanian heritage on the team. Jordan Shakiri was born in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, Granit Xhaka, his brother Toulon, plays for Albania. If you remember back to Euro 2016 when Switzerland played Albania, the Jackers played against each other, which is quite a unique uh, uh, situation in international soccer. Albania's squad uh, at that time had seven Swiss-born players in it, and conversely, seven Swiss players were eligible to play for Albania by birth or parentage during that game. So it's quite an interesting thing they've got going on there, and of course with their coach Petkovic with with, um, with a Yugoslavian background as well. And you remember um, the 2018 World Cup when Switzerland played played Serbia and I think it was Shakiri and Jacka were both fined for doing the hand gesture like it was referencing the bird from the Albanian flag uh, there's some definitely some politics going on there but also just demonstrates the um, the, the, the fluid identity of Swiss nationalism if I phrase that correctly so that's one to look out for have a look down the line when the national anthem's going on for Switzerland during their games Taylor fun fact from Turkey please yeah, I think uh, it's it's one of my favorites uh, is that they have a word karambol, which is used to indicate a situation in which the ball is loose and a large group of players are all trying to kick at the ball. So if you need a description for that scenario, which happens when there's that sort of chaos in the box, uh, then you can use that word karambol, which is uh, Turkish in origin. And I do love uh, many of the Turkish names as well. A, a quick little one would be that Olu means uh, son of, the ending Olu means you're the son of so there's uh dervish olu is one of the strikers for the turkish national team son of a dervish there you go <laughs> cannonball didn't he play for real madrid and france <laughs> he did he did <laughs> 
Sorry, I had to get that one in. Uh, <laughs> Graham, what's your fun fact for Italy, please? So I'm, I'm going to give you the Snyder cut of my fact from earlier, which oh I have, <laughs> which is uh, slightly longer, but it's be defi- slow definitely better. Um, this is direct from Opta, so uh, it's 100% correct. Jorginho was the fourth Italian player to start a Champions League or Europe, Europe, European Cup final for a non-Italian team at the weekend there for, for Chelsea, obviously, and the first since Flavio Roma in 2004 for Monaco so for a country with the footballing pedigree of Italy I think that is that's quite astonishing um, that there's only been uh, been four of them to have started a Champions League final for a non-Italian club another thing I'll mention is um, if you hear Italian fans at Euro 2020 um, because of course there will be fans at, the, at their, their home games uh, games being played in, in Rome um, they one of the one of the things they chant is essentially a chant that means you you're getting paid by the that you've paid off the referee, which in Italian soccer is one of the the biggest insults. And actually, I think we referenced this in a podcast a few weeks ago where a player got sent off for for basically um, allegedly saying that the referee had been paid. So it's it, while we may not think that's much of an insult in Italian soccer, it absolutely is. So watch out for for that one. Truth hurts with that one, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's where that has its root. <laughs> Joe, Welsh facts, go. Welsh facts is not going to be about sheep. It's actually going to be about a really, really old goal scorer for the Welsh national team. They have the oldest international goal scorer ever, or at least as of a couple of years ago, which is when uh, this write-up was was created, the one that I was looking at. Billy Meredith, who was 45 years old when he scored versus England in 1920 in a 2-1 win for Wales. Guys, I don't know about you, uh, but I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to still be. I know things were different in 1920, but being like a high level international goal scorer at 45. Come on now. That's that's next level. We got to look at what they're uh, what they're feeding the Welsh children. I think we can launch that investigation now. (laughs) I've got some very rude thoughts on that question, Joe, but I'll leave them for another time. Um, One last thing I wanted to get from you, gents, is a sense of how this group is going to shake out. As we've been hinting at, I can't quite tell who's going to top it and who's going to finish bottom. Taylor, do you have any uh, offerings on how this group might shake out or maybe who's who's not going to advance? I, I can, yeah, sort of. Uh, I think it would be Italy and Switzerland in one or two. If I was going with like a, the horse racing thing, I would, I would box those two. I'm not sure which one finishes first and which one finishes second, but I think those two will comfortably qualify for the next round. And then I think it will come down to Wales and Turkey. And uh, it's basically both teams could spring surprises and finish if not top of the group, then near it, uh, or could be very, very poor. And I think some of the questions that Joe and I have spotlighted, like we'll, we'll get answers to them pretty quickly. Can Turkey create? Are they just sort of wide open or are they experimenting for Wales? Like basically, have they got it all figured out? We're going to find out. And I think I would give Turkey the edge on that one, I think, but that might just be my bias. So I would go Italy first, Switzerland second, Turkey third, Wales fourth. Graham, any movement on that? No, that's that's what that's what I'd go with, with as well. I think I think Switzerland are one of these teams that to I know I'm leaning into the beige Switzerland thing. <laughs> They're not a very exciting team for me, but they just get it done. So I think they'll finish second ahead of Turkey. I think Turkey will still go through though as one of the best placed uh, third place teams. How very Swiss, uh, Joe. I want to put Wales up one spot in this in this group of four, but man, I feel like I'm splitting hairs a little bit. I think Italy, Switzerland, and then it really is a toss-up in my mind between Turkey and Wales, but I think I'm just being a bit biased because I previewed Wales. Turkey probably has the edge. 
Yeah, I think I'm going to be boring. Swiss, I'm going to be very Swiss and agree with, uh, with with those sentiments there. And by the way, talking of very Swiss things, I have one more fun fact. You know, Stefan Lichtensteiner, who's now uh, 37, uh, he, he, um, he has now retrained as the most Swiss thing possible, a watchmaker. <laughs> He's been doing an internship in Zurich to make watches, and they're going to auction off the first one he makes. Isn't that fun? Isn't that very Swiss? Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your contributions on all things Turkey on this ep. Right back at you, buddy, but about Switzerland and uh, the hosting duties that you bring. And future armor references, which are most unwelcome, but I like them anyway and will keep them in. <laughs> uh, Graham Rutherland, thank you very much for all things Italian. That is no problem at all. I'll be uh, warding off any Italians who have an issue with deep fried pizza for the next few weeks. Uh, I will, I'm willing to fight about it. So um, bring it on, I see. And Joe Lowry bringing the Welsh heat and we'll see you in that Scottish pizza shop in downtown Phoenix <laughs> sometime soon, I imagine. <laughs> thank you for having me, Ryan. And thank you for previewing and doing the job that you do. Aw, thanks, listeners. Bye! Bye!